We'll turn then in the scriptures to 3 John. We'll consider the first half of this epistle this morning and then, God willing, the second half this evening. 3 John is a short book in the Bible, one of the shortest. As you can see in your Bibles, it's probably just one single page. And that's how it would have been written, a single sheet of papyrus written to this man, Gaius. It's shorter than most of the New Testament chapters are, even. And yet it is an interesting book. It was written by the Apostle John, although it doesn't say that explicitly. He calls himself there in the first verse, the Elder. Um, But I think for those of you that have read through the Bible many times, you hear the voice of John in this book. You can know, you can recognize the voice of Paul. You can recognize perhaps the voice of Peter. You can recognize the voice of John. Each are unique, aren't they? They have their own distinct voice. And isn't that just, before we get into this book, isn't that an amazing fact about the Scriptures? But although it's all the Word of God... Although the Spirit of God moved holy men and inspired them to write the truth of God free from all error, yet the Spirit of God did not rob each individual author of their own voice and personality. And so we have differences in the Scriptures. And so some may prefer Matthew, some may prefer Mark, Some may prefer Luke and some may prefer John because they are different accounts from one another. And you know there is a distinct voice of John, very different uh, than the other gospel writers. In his epistles, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, very different from uh, Paul's voice. And so although it doesn't say here John, yet it has been received uh, by the church through the years as being the third Epistle of John. Compare it. You could read it. Uh, the first and second epistles this afternoon. They are they are also relatively short, and you would see many stylistic similarities in them. It's possible that Second John, also just one sheet of paper. I think Second John is actually a little bit shorter uh, than Third John. It's possible these two letters were sent to the same location. Uh, one perhaps sent to the church. Uh, there dealing with a particular issue and one sent to this individual Gaius as we'll see. Uh, We can't be sure of that but that's just a possibility. There's a relationship uh, in in some of the issues that are talked about. It's also possible that these epistles were quite late on. Uh, We know that John was the last of the apostles to die. We know that the apostles Uh, died in various places, they were martyred and so on. John, the last we see of him was when he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And from there he had the revelation, that that is the last book of the Bible. So it's possible that this letter was quite late on, written late in the first century AD. Although we can't be sure about that. It's written, as we see in verse 1, to Gaius who seems to be uh, someone, maybe a a leader in the church, but certainly someone that reflects the Lord in his actions 
and in his behaviour. He calls him there in verse 1, the beloved Gaius. He loves this man. He speaks tenderly of him. In all that he says, he speaks tenderly. Indeed, he speaks, and we'll come to this in due course, in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So he's counting Gaius there as a child in the truth. We'll come to that. But it's this, uh, he feels very much like Gaius is part of his family. And his love for him is strengthened in what we see there in verse 1. Whom I love in truth. Now some people take that phrase to say he loves him truly. He loves him sincerely. That John here is testifying to the fact that he really does love Gaius. But I don't think that's at all what John is saying here. He's rather saying, I love him in the truth. There's a bond that has us closer to one another than any other bond. Family bonds are close. Blood is thicker than water. And yet there's something even stronger that ties people together than blood. It's the Lord. It's the truth. To be brothers and sisters in Christ is closer than to be brothers in the flesh. And that's what he says here in this first verse. Here is someone that he loves because he's a Christian. Because they share the same profession. Because they're both in the truth. And because he sees Christ in this person. I want us to think this morning about Gaius and what he was like. We can learn from him. And then this evening we'll see that there are two other men spoken of in this epistle. And we'll consider them and compare and contrast them. But this morning, let's consider Gaius himself. The first thing to notice is that here is a man who walked in truth. He walked in truth. And we see that in, at the end of verse 3. I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Now we know that to walk is used in the Bible as the course of someone's life. So for example, Enoch walked with God. It's not simply saying that that God was beside him at one time and he he walked side by side physically next to God. But rather it's saying that the whole course of his life was one in which he walked before the face of God. His life matched his profession, his faith, and so on. We, we, We have that phrase, you can talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? And and we use that in English. To to show that our life, our actions have to match what we say we believe. Here is a man in this church who walks the walk. He walked in truth. The whole course of his life testifies to the truth. Now that phrase or that word truth is an important word in John's epistles. And particularly here. I don't know if you heard it. It came through several times in the scripture. He begins, and often it is the case in the epistles that the very first verse gives a hint of an important theme in the book. To the beloved guest whom I love in truth. And skim your eye 
over this epistle and you'll see that truth comes out over and over again. Here is a man that walks in the truth. Now in our postmodern world, everyone has their own truth, we're told. You speak your truth and I'll speak mine. And we know that that, has, that really is a redefinition of what the word truth is. Something is either true or it is false. You cannot have your truth and I have mine because truth is absolute. It's either true or not true. And so the postmodern way of thinking is a way of denying the place of truth because it wants to deny God's truth. Every philosophy known to man that goes astray is an attack upon God's philosophy. That's what theology is. It's God's philosophy. And so there are these attacks in our own day. And you hear it from time to time. What is your truth? What is my truth? But here, when John says that Gaius walks in the truth, or in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He is thinking of one truth, the truth. There is no other truth. If they're not walking in this way, well then they're walking in falsehood. They're walking the way of lies. What does it mean then to walk in truth? Well, the truth uh, includes, of course, the doctrine of the word of God. This word is truth. It's God's truth to our world. It's, It's his revelation of himself. What we are to believe and what we are to practice. And so someone who walks in the truth, first of all, has to believe the truth of the Word of God. To believe those things that are revealed in the Scriptures. And most importantly of all, to believe in Jesus, who is the only Savior. Jesus revealed himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. There is no other way to to, to the truth of God, but through Christ, the mediator, the one who makes known God to us. And so Gaius, therefore, by walking in the truth, has come to know Jesus Christ himself, the way, the truth, and the life. He believes not simply doctrines, to believe these things in his head, but he believes in a person, in Christ himself. But then also we see that his life evidences that. His life has uh, the, the fragrance of that. He obeys the truth. He serves the Lord in truth. His whole life mirrors his profession of faith. He's not like the hypocrites. We've thought quite a lot about hypocrites recently as we looked at Matthew's Gospel and the Pharisees. Gaius' life is not like that where he says one thing with his lips, but acts completely differently in his heart and in his his manners. No, he walks in the truth. He is sincere. He evidences a life that has been transformed by Christ. This is a man who is born again, and his life is being sanctified. Think of what we read earlier of Hezekiah in Isaiah 38. Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart 
and have done what is good in your sight. I think those three phrases go together as almost synonymous. I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And that certainly could be said of, of Gaius and anyone of whom we can say they walk in the truth. Their heart is loyal to the Lord and they do what is right in the sight of God. See, for Gaius, he was conscious at every moment of every day he was before the Lord himself, seen by the Lord, heard by the Lord. The Lord's presence was there and therefore he lived in that way. And friends, it gives us pause to ask ourselves the question, do we walk in the truth? Not just do we believe the right things, but is our life one that manifests the transformation of of Christ's work in our life? Are we walking the walk as well as talking the talk? But then we see another phrase in this letter uh, that brings out a little different flavour, but the same idea of how Gaius' life was. And it's in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. John's assessment of this man is that his soul is prospering. And in the context there, he's praying for him to have health. But we can see here that that is the implication here is that John's view of the spiritual health of Gaius is that he is doing well. If you were to give a, a, a spiritual checkup the way a doctor would to, to us physically, if you were to do a spiritual checkup to this man's life, you would say his soul is prospering. He is walking in truth. It's evident that his soul is healthy, it's prospering. But friends, this verse has been misinterpreted from time to time in the church. Because look what it says. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Those who uh, imbibe the prosperity gospel, prosperity preachers, take this verse and twist it to suit their own ends. They say that if you are a good Christian, if you do the right things, if you believe strong enough, well then you will receive good things. Prosperity. You will prosper in all things. In your finances, in your career, in your family life, and your health. You will be healthy and well. And of course, Flip that on its head. And what do you have? If your life isn't this way. If you're not healthy. If you're not well. If your life is in poverty. You're not believing strong enough. You're not walking close enough. How much of a damage does that do to the church of Christ? Our brother in the Gambia particularly has this to deal with. Because... The prosperity gospel is, is all around him in, the, in those who say they're Christians. The vast majority of them uh, who would believe uh, themselves or call themselves Christians in the Gambia would have this sort of theology that they would, they would spout out. This is commonplace in those who are celebrity 
in status uh, as ministers. Those who have uh, huge ministries, often named after themselves, uh, who maybe have themselves on TV uh, and spread this sort of message far and wide. And what damage it does to the church of Christ. Are we really to believe that someone who is sick has something wrong in their soul? Remember what Jesus said about the man who was born blind? When his disciples asked him whose sin is it? Whose sin is responsible for his sickness? His parents' sin or his own sin? And Jesus denied that it was either specifically and particularly. Of course our sin can affect our health. That's true. But we shouldn't necessarily conclude that it must and always does. Because friends, there are very godly people in the world. Very godly people who are poor, whose life is not prosperous, and their outward body is weak, and yet their soul is prospering. And how often it's the case that the Lord uses these difficulties in our lives in order to make our soul prosper all the more. We think to ourselves, wouldn't it be nice to have a better career and more money and better health? And we pray for these things, and it's legitimate of course, to pray for these things as long as we're subjecting ourselves to the will of God. The soul's health is the most important. And we count it all joy even to be afflicted, to undergo many trials if it makes our soul flourish. John here prays, and it's a strong word, he prays that um, Gaius would be healthy and well. He wants him to have good health. And, and isn't that what we pray for one another? We want each other to be healthy and well and prosperous. But he's praying it knowing also that the most important thing is the prosperity of the soul. So we can't misinterpret this verse. But nevertheless, it does show to you something about this man. Not only does he walk in the truth, but if you were to look into his soul, his soul is prospering. And oh, that that could be said of us, that our souls are prospering. We're so concerned at times about the outward man, but are we concerned for our souls? Are we looking within? Are we examining ourselves to see how we really are? The Word of God is a mirror, isn't it? It shows who we are. And sometimes it shows to us parts of our life that we're not well pleased with. It doesn't suit us. It doesn't please us how we look. Nevertheless, are we looking to see if there is prosperity? John here, speaking of Gaius, is delighted. He's rejoicing in the spiritual health. His soul is prosperous. He's walking in the truth. And so in verse 4 he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Nothing could please the Apostle more than to know that Gaius is walking in the truth. And friends, that is what a pastor can say. He delights in knowing that his children are walking in the truth. And I think there are two ways in which we can see this and how it relates to the pastor, first of all. First of all, if someone has been converted under a particular pastor, that pastor will have a great desire for their spiritual health to see that they're still walking in the truth. And Paul said 
Uh, for though, this is in Corinthians, for though you may have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. So Paul had a very special relationship with the Corinthian church. It was through his preaching and his ministry there that these people had come to faith. And so he could call himself their father. And he, and he does that, doesn't he, to, to various people uh, uh, whom he has been instrumentally used in their conversion. He counts himself as, as their father. They are his dear children. But of course, it's not only in that sense that he counts himself their father. But he also says in Galatians 4, My little children, for whom I labour in birth again, until Christ is formed in you. That's Galatians 4. Paul's desire for the Galatian church was to see Christ formed in them. To see them conformed more and more to the image of Christ. To see sin being put to death and righteousness to be in them. And so whether a pastor has been instrumentally used in the conversion of the people to whom he's preaching, there is still that desire to see Christ formed in them. A fatherly desire, almost, we could say, a motherly desire to labour in birth pains until Christ is formed in them. And so when a minister sees a congregation walking in the truth, seeing them responding to the gospel, to the preaching of the word of God, to see the outworking of that gospel in their lives, there can be nothing that brings greater joy to that minister than that. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. But then also we can take this verse and apply it in a slightly different way and to consider the relationship between parents and their children. Because it, it's true, is it not? Those of you who are parents, there is no greater joy than to see and hear your children walk in the truth. Isn't that the desire of the Christian parent in their heart? Isn't that, that the thing they long for most of all? That Christ would be formed in their children and that they would walk in, their, in the truth of God. And because it's the greatest joy to see that, therefore it must be the greatest prayer and the greatest effort that we put towards it. If we would be uh, the happiest on earth if our children walked in the truth, therefore we must make it our greatest and chiefest prayer that they would walk in the truth. What else is there compared to this? You see, people in the world want to get their children ahead in every uh, part of life. They want to make them accomplished. They want them to excel in all things. Sport and music and their education. To be f full of friends. To have uh, a good career. To get ahead in life. That's, uh, you'd do anything for your children, wouldn't you? But friends, the greatest and most important thing is for them to come to faith and to walk in the truth. And therefore, if it's the greatest joy to see children walking in the truth, surely it must be the greatest sorrow 
and the greatest burden not to see your children walk in the truth. Surely that must be a great hardship that many of you bear and carry around with you. Wouldn't you love to see that? Of course you would. You would do anything. As Paul speaks of his own countrymen, you would almost cut yourself off if it meant they could be included. And so this must be our burden as a congregation. That the children of the members of this church would walk in the truth. To walk the Christian life sincerely and consistently. John looks here at Gaius. He listens to what he has heard. And he delights that he does walk in the truth. Look, at, look again at verse 3. Because I didn't bring this out earlier. But I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. It's not just what John himself saw in Gaius. It's the fact that people had come from him. They had visited the church. They had been with him. They had lived with him. They had experienced his hospitality. And they returned to John to say, This man Gaius, there's something special about him. He walks consistently and faithfully. He loves the Lord. He seeks to live for the Lord. And we had a wonderful time in his company because we got the fragrance of Christ from him. Isn't it a good thing to have people say those sorts of things about us? Isn't that what we would want most of all? That people would have that sort of an impression on us, about us. Not simply uh, that we, people would go and talk about us and congratulate us and say nice things about us to other people. There's a, a little bit of the pride of the human heart that desires other people to be saying nice things about us. But if there is any report about us, isn't that what we want most of all? And so we should seek to live our lives in such a way, to walk according to the truth. So that's the first thing we see. Gaius hadn't backslidden or apostatized, but he was walking consistently in the truth. But then secondly, we see that he had a generous hospitality. This is an outworking, really, of the former point. Because he walked in the truth, the life of this servant of God was one that was open to brethren and to strangers. This is the particular grace, the particular ornament that shines most brightly in this servant of God, his hospitality. Look at verses 5 to 8, and you see how he's commended for this. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing for the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. It's interesting because I said earlier that 2nd and 3rd John possibly were written to the same location. And back in 2nd John and Verse 10, John is saying, not the opposite, but he's saying the complement of this truth. Look, at, uh, look back at verses 10 and 11. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. If someone comes with a false doctrine, false teaching, we're not to to, to help them and support them in their ministry. We're not to donate money to them or open up our homes to them in such a way that they would be supported. No, John says, don't do that. Don't let the false teachers in. But here's the compliment in 3 John. What about those who do come in the truth? What about those who are coming and preaching Christ? Well, surely they're to be welcomed, received. You're to be hospitable to them and send them on their way uh, with support and with peace. We'll be considering this evening Diotrephes uh, that he speaks of there in verse 9. But it's interesting that Diotrephes was the opposite of Gaius in this regard. Look at verse 10 and it says, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does Praying against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and goes further, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. See, he's the polar opposite of this loving servant of God. Gaius is known for his generous hospitality. And look there at verse 5, and you see that there are two types of people. That he is hospitable to. There are the brethren. And there are strangers. The brethren I think are those that are in the congregation. Those that are known to him. Those who live around him. He is hospitable to the congregation itself. That He opens up his home. To those people that are around him. Week by week. But not only to them. Also to strangers. Now, by the word strangers here, it's particularly in the context Christians, and more especially those who are missionaries or ministers of the gospel, who are spreading uh, the gospel of Christ in the world. To such people, Christians that come from afar, Gaius opens his home to them. It doesn't matter that he doesn't know them. It doesn't matter that he's never met them. It doesn't matter that they come from a different country than he comes from. His door is open. His home is open. Indeed, his heart is open to them. He receives them and he blesses them. And isn't that an encouraging thought for us? A good exhortation for us to receive and to support those who bring Christ. And no matter where they come from, that's what Gaius did. His support to them is seen here in verse 6. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. He sent them forth in a godly manner. Now what way did he do that? I have no doubt he opened his home and fed such people not only for a meal, but he opened his home to let them live with him. Because in these days, that's what it took. When you went out with the gospel, you weren't going to live in hotels. You weren't going to be buying or renting accommodation. You were dependent upon the church, and they opened their homes to you. That's what Gaius did. But not only that, not only did he support these missionaries 
these visiting ministers when they were there in his company. But he also sent them forward on their journey. Well, when it came to them leaving to go and preach Christ elsewhere, he supported them. He supported them materially in order to help them. That they would go to places where Christ was not named. Perhaps as they took uh, their leave of him and the, their leave of this particular city, perhaps he walked with them part of the way, encouraging them, giving them fellowship right to the very end, right to that part of the road where he had to turn and go back and to command them to the Lord's grace. He did this in a manner worthy of God. And why? Well, verse 7 gives us the key. Because they went forth for his name's sake. That is, for the name of Christ. These missionaries, these ministers were taking Christ to the world. They didn't want to be reliant upon the Gentiles. That is, they didn't want to be reliant upon non-Christians to support them. They would take nothing from the world. But they were so dependent and so thankful for those who were hospitable and helped them on in the way. Because Gaius chose to do this, verse 8 tells us that he became a fellow worker with these people. Look at verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Gaius's work in hospitality was tied up part and parcel with that of the missionary, that of the visiting minister. Their work was his work because he joined in with them by opening his home and his heart to them. Friends, doesn't that teach us something today? That support given to a minister or to a missionary, support given to the cause of Christ, ties us up together in a remarkable way, a very special way, with someone. When we have opportunity to support Christ, uh, Christ's cause afar off, missionaries who go and leave this land to go afar, when we give money towards that, we become a fellow worker with them. When we write a letter of encouragement to them, we become a fellow worker with them. When we get down on our knees to pray for them in their endeavours, we become a fellow worker with them. Whatever we do to support them, we join in in their work. And friends, when we join in in their work, we are included in in their reward. The Lord honours those who honour him. If he honours those who work for him in far off lands, surely the Lord also honours those who support such people, even though they do not go themselves. It's a simple fact that the majority of the Church of Christ cannot be missionaries. The majority of people cannot go elsewhere because the majority of Christ's people are not called to be ministers or missionaries, to go out with the gospel of Christ. And yet, friends, take encouragement from this, that every single person in the Church of Christ, man or woman, can be a fellow worker in Christ's cause. By the support they give to those who take Christ out to the world, they become fellow workers for the truth. 
And notice that word truth again. How it reappears in this epistle time and time again. Gaius was someone who walked in the truth. And he was someone who became a fellow worker for the truth. I'm sure if you were to meet Gaius and talk to him and ask him, uh, he wouldn't necessarily think so highly of what he had done. I was simply giving them a meal, simply supporting them. I was just trying to help a fellow brother in Christ. And yet these people go back to John with a glowing report of what he has done for them. A simple thing, a small thing, but a loving thing. And friends, isn't that true for us? There have been many times, I'm sure, in your life and in mine, where someone uh, who is walking in truth, someone who is a Christian, and you can smell Christ from them, his fragrance, they do something for you that's so small, and yet it's done in love. And you rejoice in it. You're touched by it. You're marveled by it. In fact, you, in many, many years later, you're still thinking of that little thing that they did for you. They've become a fellow worker with you by their support. We thought last week about how heaven will be filled with all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all worshipping and praising the Lord. We thought of how we should desire that, how we should pray for that. But friends, here is a way that we can sit here, that you can remain living here in Stornoway and still be part. Here is a way, in fact, you have proven yourself as a congregation to be already part of the Lord's cause in this world. Because there are people and causes with which you have become fellow workers in the truth. Laboring together for the truth. Let that be an encouragement to us. Even in days where the cause of Christ is weakening here. And we see little fruit for our labours. Let that be an encouragement that we are doing something by our praise. We are doing something by our support. Because we're working, as we're told here in verse 7, it's for his name's sake. It's not for us. It's not for our glory. It's not for our selfish reasons. But all for Christ. And friends, those of you who walk in the truth, I know would do anything for Christ. Anything to serve him. And that's why this man, Gaius, is a great example to us. This evening we'll consider the other two men that are spoken of. Let's stand to pray. (coughs) O Lord our God, we thank you that you have revealed to us the truth in your word. We thank you that Christ is the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to walk in truth. We pray that we would. We pray that our lives would be consistent and sincere. Help us to walk even closer with God than we have even heretofore. We pray, Lord, that we might be an example of those who are loving and generous and hospitable, particularly for those who are called by your name, that your cause may be advanced in this world. Hear us, O Lord. Answer us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll conclude with singing from Psalm 86.
Psalm 86, and we'll sing from verse 9 to verse 13. And notice there, first of all, the, the hope for the nations, all nations whom thou madest shall come and worship reverently before thy face. And they, O Lord, thy name shall glorify. But then also, more personally, in verse 11, teach me thy way, and in thy truth, O Lord, then walk will I. Unite my heart, that I thy name may fear continually. We've heard of a man who walked in truth. We've heard of the great joy it is when children walk in the truth. And so let us pray earnestly that we ourselves will be teachable to walk in God's truth, that our hearts will be united and loyal, that we would fear him continually. Psalm 87, verses 9 to 13. Yeah, sorry, 86, 9 to 13. We sing God's praise. <coughs> For nations Amen. Mm-hmm.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>